Our NAP Commission is relatively late, uh, starting in 71, uh, hearings in 71, 71, 72. Simultaneous with that, Lindsay attempts to run for president. I think the die is pretty cast by then. Lindsay has moved on from Leary Leaves, uh, replaced by Pat Murphy, who is a, one of the great reform commissioners, who's racing madly to stay ahead of the NAP Commission, and, and puts in a doctrine which today is really a, a keystone in, in, in police work, but Murphy's the first commissioner that does command accountability, that if you're, you're a precinct head, you're responsible for what happens in your precinct, and, and we're not going to just sacrifice four guys down, down the line who may have done something wrong. And if you're a sergeant, in other words, the concept goes command all the way down the Correct. command line. So if you're a sergeant, somebody under you, does something, you're responsible. So that they wanted the sergeant to say to the people under him, hey, listen, guys, I'm not taking it in the neck for what you guys do, so you guys better be straight. That, that was the, what they wanted to accomplish, and I think they did. And as, Mike, as, as Mike's investigation shows, much of the, the uh, corru- patterns of corruption aren't, aren't just guys on the beat. It's very organized pads with, with, with higher-ups involved who get a split. So Murphy's notion, which I think is today profoundly important for running any organization like this, and it is reflected today in another era of Comstat, where you have information about precincts we didn't have, uh, you couldn't gather that manually fast enough, but Comstat is the same thing. You've got to come in and defend what's going on in your precinct. You can't say, oh, you know, it's, it's, every, it's a crime wave in the whole city or it's a ter- youth problem that we all face. What's going on in your precinct? Uh, you're responsible for both so spread to the notion of crime fighting as well as corruption and integrity in the department. So Pat, Pat was a pretty significant force. And, and um, you know, I'm not sure terribly popular in the department, though he was a New York City cop who'd worked the, walked the beat his whole career, was in police work. So he had a certain credibility. And uh, by this point in time, the, the edge was off the PBA. The department was on the defensive somewhat. So I don't think there really was quite another side to it the way there had been five, six years earlier. Well, he, the, Murphy, M- Murphy uh, I, I thought, he, he wrote a, a book in which he had, a, you could see throughout the book, a key word that Murphy used to use, which I thought was kind of the key to part of the way he operated, and that's the word translation. And he would say... I said to Jay Kriegel, such and such and such and such. Translation, and then he would say what he really meant. Uh, that, that Murphy was uh, indirect in the way he went about things. And, and uh, he, he, was, he was scared to death. We, we had Whitnap arranged to have breakfasts with Murphy and with his first dep, uh, uh, Bill, Smith. Once, Bill Smith, once a month. And we would have we would have breakfast at the Yale Club, and they were all very congenial, and and we would sit. And we found that if we wanted to affect a real a reform in the police department, the best way to do it would be to at one of those breakfasts to just indicate to Murphy that we were thinking <laughs> of looking into it. Thing would get done. Zoom, right? <laughs> he, would, he would get out and try and get ahead of us when when we inadvertently discovered, I mean, not inadvertently, we were going through the, the records of, of hotels to restaurants to just see statistically 
how, because cops would sign on for freebies, uh, how many they were doing. We came across a, a, a dinner for $81, I think, signed by Al Seedman, who was the chief of detectives. And this is the last thing in the world we wanted. It was about two days, three days before the hearings, and we did not want our hearings to be put down as being about free meals. So that the last thing in the world we wanted. But on the other hand, we had found this, and we couldn't pretend that we hadn't. So I called up Murphy myself to tell him that we'd found it and to tell him that we were not going to use it in our hearings. <laughs> I said, we're not going to get into this, but I wanted you to know that, well, he didn't believe me, I think. <laughs> and so he fired Seedman. Didn't want to take the chance. The next day, he fired Seedman and then had to take it back the next day, and uh, it, it caused a big, a big ruckus that uh, I, I think, he also, in Murphy's treatment of, of Batman and Robin, I don't know if you remember those guys, there's a couple of guys named Hanson Greenberg who were uh, uh, flamboyant uh, cops who, uh, who were uh, ultimately were the, the, <coughs> the, uh, the models for Starsky and Hutch, I think, the, the TV, mm, right. the TV right. thing. But they called themselves, they were called derisively Batman and Robin in the black community because these guys really were awful people. They preyed on the, on the African-American community and they, they would round up a bunch of blacks and just go down and, you know, and, and, and search them with no cause. And they were, and they were, they were bad guys. Gene Gold, who was the DA in, in Brooklyn, was convinced that they had been guilty of a double murder of two informants in the back seat of a car. And, and, and we looked into it, and we became convinced as well. Uh, and, uh, they, uh, but we couldn't prove it. But these guys were real flamboyant guys. And ultimately, we had left by this time, but, uh, but uh, Murphy saw to it that they were made detectives. And they were given gold shields and he presented the gold shield himself at a ceremony. And they showed their colors by showing up at this ceremony with the police commissioner dressed as Batman Come and Robin. Come on. Is that I'm true? not kidding. <laughs> and they, they had Batman and Robin outfits on when they showed up. And, and Murphy, you know, in my humble judgment, if <clears throat> you can imagine what Kelly would have done under those circumstances. He never, or, or, or Bratton, I mean, either one of them, they never would have been in it in the first place. But if somebody showed up at a ceremony, they would not only not get their gold shields, but they would be out. But uh, Murphy went through and presented the gold shields to these guys dressed up in Batman and Robin costumes, which, of course, was a beautiful entree for their movie, Super Cops. And there it was with Murphy doing so. I'm saying that he uh, you know he, he tried to have it both ways he in the middle in the middle of our hearings after we we had we had, had bill phillips who was our chief witness who was a a real super thief and a real crook uh on and he had testified for 2 days about real serious corruption and very convincingly because he's right in the middle of it uh and murphy went on the on the police radio the third day in the morning, and and said, 
and, and, and attacked Phillips. Said, you people, you're wonderful cops and all this, and just because some rogue cop. The rogue cop. Rogue cop. The rogue cop theory. Testifying to save himself. Everything Murphy said was true. Of course he's a rogue cop. That's what he was testifying about, was being a rogue cop. But when he said rogue cop, he was implying that he wasn't telling the truth when Murphy knew perfectly well that he was telling the truth. And, you know, so that those kinds of things. But Jay is absolutely right. His, his instincts, I mean, what he was, wanted to do was he wanted to accomplish reform, and he, 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 he did a lot of things and to, to do that. Uh, it's just that he, he was so obviously watching his back the whole time. My feeling about Lindsay, I had, I had uh, 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 suspicions that uh, once we got into it, that his assurances at the outset to Whitnap that uh, <clears throat> we could have the time that we needed to do our work were, were, were not sincere because uh, he gave us, he, he saw to us that we had money through the end of 1970 until until the end of 1970. And then, but uh, we had only been at work really a few months at that time. And the, uh, and Witt told him, said, look, this could last a year or two years as an investigation. And, and Lindsay had said, well, don't worry, we'll get more funds. Well, it became apparent at the end of 1970 that there was no damn way in the world that we were going to get further funds approved by the city council. And I always suspected that you guys knew that. And I confronted you once over the years with it and said, you know, what you did was you set us up <clears throat> to start knowing that we couldn't get the funds and then we would be put out of business before we could embarrass you and then you would get credit for starting us but you wouldn't have to take the blame. And Jay said to me, Mike... He'd give us much too credit. He'd give us much too much credit. We weren't that sophisticated. And I, I, I believe what he tells me nowadays. But uh, it seemed to me, because there was, we then went to the federal government and got a grant without telling Lindsay. We, we didn't tell Lindsay we were going to do this. <laughs> and we... And then when as cunning as a police commissioner, see? Yeah. Just, just well, if we told Lindsay we were going to do it, he would have found some way to go to the to the feds because he had more he had more connections than we, we knew. One guy, Danziger, down there, and uh, and and we went around to all Whitnap's uh, uh, fancy uh, friends in, in various foundations to get contributions, and uh, we got enough to allow us to go for another six months. It funded us through July 1st, and the, our wisdom in realizing that we weren't going to get any more money was proven by the fact that when we went before the city council, just to get this renewal of the subpoena power, which was required by the feds in order to give us that money, we almost didn't get it. I mean, it was a and and I will say this: Lindsay came in and and made a, a, a forthright statement on our behalf to get those funds 
before the city council. And, but w without that, and, and here <laughs> we're saying we've got several hundred thousand dollars that the federal government is willing to give us. It, all you have to do is authorize subpoena power, and they almost didn't do it. The Serpico matter involved the charges that Frank Serpico had originally made about the mayor's office not proceeding uh, with uh, the proper uh, speed back in 67, 68, uh, and that's what led to the Knapp Commission. We had devoted our efforts to try and find out what was going on in 70 and 71, and the who struck John issue of, you know, who, who did what to whom back in 67, 68 was something that we felt had already been looked into, and, you know, we, we took executive testimony from various people, but we weren't even going to go into the hearings about that, uh, and ultimately we, I'm wondering, but we did because Maddie Troy, a local politician, came out and accused us of covering up for the mayor by not going into it, so Witt said, well, if our purpose is to retain credibility, and if we're going to lose credibility by not having these hearings, we better have the hearings. So we had hearings at that point. And our purpose in the second hearings about the Serpico matter was not kind of an investigative thing. It was more to just let everybody put out what they wanted to say, and then we would draw whatever conclusions we wanted to afterwards in our report. So, uh, but I said, you know, we have no credibility at all if we don't, if we don't talk to Lindsay. He had been very much against calling Lindsay, we all did, calling Lindsay to testify publicly because he's going for the presidency at the time. And as Witt said, if John Lindsay wants national publicity, he can get it himself. <laughs> We're not going to give him a forum. <laughs> yeah. He, he said it would be distracting. I mean, nothing he says is going to really help us because we know what the story is. Uh, and all we're going to do is just put the whole focus on John Lindsay, so we're not going to call him in public hearings or anything like that. Everyone agreed to that. But we met, and you were there, we met uh, on uh, at Gracie Mansion, as I recall, on the eve of the hearings, to sit down with Lindsay and talk to him and you and kind of lay out so that we could at least satisfy ourselves of the fact that we had we had checked with him. Well, I would say historically, the allegation against me, us, was that because of the, the long, hot summers uh, and the need to keep the peace in New York City and keep the cops, uh, in, in, in a sense, in line in, in, in controlling uh, urban disorders that we had been soft on corruption. Uh, uh, well, specifically, my, if I could interrupt, specifically the allegation that Frank Serpico made was that he had brought allegations of corruption, uh, in the plainclothes precinct that he was that he was asked to participate in, to the attention first of the first deputy commissioner, and then had after that brought it to your your 
uh, attention and that nothing was done about and, it. And to the investigation commissioner. And to the, and to right, but that was a separate thing. He had brought a separate allegation to the investigations commission, and nothing was done about it for a period of months. And as I recall, the, the there were three meetings that that they had with you, and everyone agreed that Serpico at the first meeting didn't say anything that could be followed up. And everyone agreed that at the last meeting that there was stuff that could be followed up. And the disagreement was, was stuff brought out at the middle meeting that could have been followed up on. And, and you had said no, and Serpico had said yes. And uh, I, I always said I thought that both of you were telling the truth as you honestly remembered it. But uh, but the, the so the issue was, did the department, at the mayor's insistence, delay looking into something until the summer was over, and uh, and they did in fact when the fall came up look into it rather vigorously. It was a grand jury investigation in the Bronx, and that looked into these these things and indictments that resulted. But. The question was, why wasn't something done for at least a period of six months? And that was really the whole issue, which I kind of thought that in the light of what we found was going on in the department as a whole was relatively minor. I mean, it, uh, it, it And I would say, I'd say this. From a mayor's standpoint, the issue of, of riot control is something extremely visible that happens in public. It's recorded on camera, and you can see very easily what a uh, thousand cops do in East New York starting in the summer of 66, uh, the two places where it became uh, unruly. One was at Columbia in 68, and one was down on Wall Street in 1970 in the so-called hard hat riot where cops and, and, uh, and construction workers beat up kids in an anti-war protest. Uh, you, you know exactly what's going on. Um, some of it, some of it, as we know from police stuff, within an era today, particularly of cell phone videos, might happen in private. But 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 the big things we were talking about, which is really disorders, not isolated cases of of a cop and a, and a, and a, and a citizen under arrest. Um, we could see exactly what was happening. We were even on site almost, almost all those situations. Corruption is a different thing. It's secret. It's private. It's a very sabrosa. What you do about it, you're totally dependent on someone to investigate that, whether it's the department itself or having enough to go to a DA. Um, so how you talk to the commissioner and the first deputy, the legendary John Walsh, um, is, a, is a, all I can say is that, A, that something that, that was done by the mayor, done by us, as best as we thought we could, pushing as far as we thought we could without having a fight with your commissioners saying you're not doing enough, which we didn't know anything about anyhow. They weren't going to tell us the results of the investigations. We wouldn't ask them the results of the investigations. That was all internal. Uh, when it came time for, you know, that commission is appointed because of uh, a New York Times report, which is happening because of Serpico and Dirk going to the Times. And one thing people have said, said in the intervening years, why didn't the mayor appoint a commission before that? And, of course, I, th I think it's pretty clear that given the politics of the situation, having lost the Civilian Review Board, the mayor had announced, based on rumors and word of, of, of alleged corruption, I'm going to appoint an independent commission to investigate the police department, you'd, you'd, you'd be laughed out of town. You certainly wouldn't get a subpoena power from the city council, which you needed. The mayor couldn't do it himself. 
<clears throat> doesn't have subpoena power to delegate. Um, and the whole thing would be would be a fiasco, I think, setback. So the time story gives you leverage to first appoint ranking commission. I don't remember when was when was correct. When committee. were you when were you ranking committee? When was, when was uh, uh, NAP commission appointed? Well, the the ranking committee was appointed actually seventy two days before or a day before the time, the story. time story in an attempt, I think, to preempt it. And the Times story, because they knew it was coming out, the Times story came out at the time, and the ranking committee consisted of the most of the DAs, the Department of Investigations chief, the uh, a, a, a lot of the, the officials in town, whom they themselves said, uh, we're the ones that, that, uh, that people could look at to blame, so we can't do this. And also, they didn't have a staff... They didn't have anything. It was an attempt to, to get a committee, but the committee didn't have any, any Let real me, I would only say a little differently. The Times finally came to the mayor's office and said, we're publishing the story. Yeah. Here, here, we want your comment on this. So the Times made City Hall aware that the story was coming out. There had yeah. been some rumors before. Yeah. There was, no, one, no one thought for a second you could stop the story. The oh, question no, no. was, what, do you, what can you say when the story comes out? What's your rebuttal? So... The, the quick response is to show that you take, not knowing what the allegations are, not knowing what the story is going to say, that we take it seriously, yeah. put a group of, of people together with the most prestigious group you could come up with in, in 24 hours, say your job is to take the story and tell us what to do. Right. And so at least in the story you have the fact the mayor acted promptly to appoint a, co- a committee to look at the allegations. The committee comes back and says... This is be, this is beyond our ability. You need subpoena power. You need staff. You need money. It's got to be something more. Which Rankin is a very serious man who has been solicitor general of the United States, sure. an old line uh, righteous Republican like Lindsey was, comes back, and that's when the mayor decides to to appoint the NAB commission. I mean, this is always a very complicated issue for the mayor. But I but I would I would just say that the mayor never wavered in the belief that this was a serious issue that had to be dealt with. And if it couldn't be dealt with by the department itself, that this was the only choice to do it, uh, he would not have taken someone like, like Witt and other people who he knew, who were, pres- you're not going to take a Cy Vance and a Frank Thomas, and we didn't really know Mike, that was Witt's decision. Um, very prestigious people, and set them up, I mean, it's not Lindy Styles, set them up and, and embarrass them, embarrass yourself. So he was serious about it. I don't the, the the money situation put aside. The subpoena was clear that we 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 went and fought for that and got it. Um, the the notion of having hearings was, was obviously always awkward. Lindsay's running for president at the same time as these hearings going on. But I don't think the mayor ever ever wavered in believing that this had to be done. It was the right thing to do. It was an issue he was unambiguous about throughout his life. Never had any regrets about it. My feeling was that. Public hearings were necessary in order to accomplish what we were trying to accomplish, which was to bring to the attention of the public the conditions in the department that everyone chose to deny. And we had to, we had to lay it out and make it so that people couldn't say it didn't exist and uh, a report that just got filed somewhere, in my judgment, would not have done it. It would have, it would have just, just rolled right over it. Now, everyone didn't agree with me on this. 
this fellow, Marty Danziger, who's a friend of mine, he didn't agree with me. He wanted me to, you know, forget about the hearings. Don't don't spend your time on that. Just just write a report on what the issues are. I said, a report, Marty, is just going to go up on the files of in the somewhere, and no one will ever pay any attention to it. Uh, and indeed, Whitnap and the commissioners who who were not in on the day to day, you know, that they, they we'd have a meeting every once in a while, and I'd bring them up to date on what was going on. But they were very leery of having a, a hearing that, that fell on its face. And, I rem- and we, we were at one point not going to have a, a hearing, a public hearing. And by that time, we had uncovered this fellow, Bill Phillips, who is the, the ultimate rogue. I mean, uh, uh, he ultimately uh, did 33 years for a homicide that... Uh, I still maintain he didn't do, but uh, other people say he did, uh, including the 12 jurors who convicted him. And uh, uh, But uh, we certainly didn't know about anything about that at the time, but he was a total rogue, and we had caught him, and I sat down and made a tape of just a preliminary, just an interview, just talk with, with Bill. Just saying, all right, what about this, what about that? And he just talked and talked back and forth. And I gave that tape to Whit Knapp and, and said, look, just listen to this. This, is, this guy is going to be our chief witness. And Whit listened to it, and he came back and he said, my God, the guy is a Baron Munchausen. He said this is, and it was only by, by having <laughs> Whit listen to that tape that he was convinced that we were going to have a hearing that would make have the impact that uh, that I thought it would have, and that I thought was necessary. But my feeling was that that without the hearings, uh, it, it would not have accomplished what I really think it did accomplish. I think I think that that you know in Frank Serpico's uh, uh, analysis, which I thought was so so smart at the time, he, he said. Ten percent of the department is absolutely corrupt. Ten percent of the department is absolutely honest, and the other eighty percent, they wish they were honest. And that was so wise because that eighty percent that really wanted to be honest, but they they, they couldn't because the, the atmosphere of corruption was so permissive that that it, you didn't dare say anything against it. What happened? I'm satisfied, and I think it was because of our hearings. What happened was that no one could deny that there was corruption anymore. It's out on the table, and now that 80% they had with Murphy's prodding and with the feds coming in, they had the ability to become honest. And I think that the so-called grass eaters, as they were called, uh, uh, as opposed to the meat eaters who were the crooks, but the grass eaters, that's the 10%, just turned around. And I've had people tell me that time in the police department was measured as pre-nap and post-nap, uh, having to do with this culture. But when, when we looked at it, we had guys who bragged about doing corrupt things that they didn't even do just to be one of the boys. <laughs> and, you know, and my line always was, after we our hearings... You could be corrupt if you wanted to be, but you had to lie about it. You couldn't brag about it. 
And I think that was that was the difference that the hearings made, I think. And I you know, I, I, I think I was right. I think that that without the hearings our we would have been just another uh, Study group, and I would say that for people who've been in government, that, that the uh, government points commissions and committees all day long, study groups, task forces, etc., and reports come out every day, and most of them, most of them, ninety-five percent of them get what Mike just said, which is they get put on a shelf somewhere, read, read by the people who wrote them in a very narrow constituency. And one of the challenges of people who do that is to, when you, if you're going to do it or if you're going to be in charge of running one or chairing one, how do you have an impact? If you're, if you're going to spend a year or two of your life doing this, what do you do? And it's different for different reports. There are various ways to do it. Uh, something we spent a lot of time on the Kerner Commission Report, and I'd like to think it's one of the most successful national studies that's ever been done for a commission, uh, though the subject helped, you know, it's so current. But th this report did that, uh, and it had to disabuse this, the widespread notion, which is also the notion that the cops were putting out and the politicians were putting out, which is the, the rotten apple theory, which, which, was, which is in the report and discussed, discussed by Mike in the report, that you know every barrel has a couple of rotten apples. That was, that was always the, the theory. And was said all the way through this. So how do you how do you challenge that? And the key to doing that, the hearing does that, but the key to the hearing is what Mike just said. You had to have at least a witness or, or more that is so credible and so powerful that it that and describing a system more than just his pocketing stuff, but a whole network, which is what Sir Pakoda had described, uh, including Supervised, a lot of guys who knew about the pad or on the pad, a regular collection system that everybody shared in. So you couldn't not be aware of it if you're within 100 feet of it. And that's what the hearings achieved. There's no denying, uh, unless you say the guy fabricated the whole thing, but it was so, so persuasive and so powerful that it had a, a profound effect on saying it is not just a couple of rotten apples. There is something profoundly wrong and systemic. And I think that the proof of something that was true was aided by the sometimes unfair uh, exposure that the press gave it. Uh, that some of the things that, that we said were exaggerated and uh, we, we got the press on our side. And the press just ran with it, and often, and not fairly. I remember remember when when Bill testified about uh, we had a map of of the precincts in the city, and we had all of the 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 the, the divisions. I guess was it the divisions of precincts. I think, and he went through and gave his view as to. Oh, it was plainclothes divisions. I'm sorry. There was each division in the city. Plainclothes like or narcotics? Or 17 one of them. Which one? No, uh, plainclothes. Uh, plainclothes, having to do with with vice and plainclothes. And and understand, there are only 700 people in the plainclothes division in a department of 32,000, right? And and Bill is talking about the plainclothes people in their divisions, and he went through and said, okay, he had personal experience with. This one and this one and this one. And he gave the pad in each division as he understood it to be. Now, in some of them, he knew it. 
And in others, he just heard. And in some, he was just estimating. And he, he went, but he gave the pad in each division throughout the, throughout the city. As I think there were 17 of them at the time. And, uh, but be clear what the pad is. I'm clear sorry. The, but the, the pad was the regular collection of, of money from gamblers by the officers who were supposed to suppress gambling. And they would gather it all up and put it in a pot and then pay the shares out to the, uh, each of the people in the division depending on how much they collected and the supervisors got a share and a half, and it was organized in such a way that if you left that division and went to another division that was more or less productive, you didn't get, you, you, you didn't get paid in the new division for two months while they checked you out, but that's okay because you got severance pay from the old division for the two months that you so it was that well organized. And so that the pad varied from, from, from you know, up in, 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 in Harlem in the 2-5, uh, there was a lot of numbers rackets and a lot of things going on. And if you, if you go down to Wall Street, uh, it wasn't quite so much action, so you didn't get so much. So that the pad varied from division to division. And Bill gave what he thought the number was in each one of these things. In some of them, he said he didn't. He didn't really, you know, he thought it was. Whit Knapp said something very interesting that, that he said that there was a cop that he, he knew that, that was in a hospital bed, as I recall, with someone else who told Whit about it, who sat there watching television, and as Bill went to each division, the cop said what he thought the pad was in each case, and he was... <laughs> it was the same one that Bill, that Bill named throughout the, the, the... But the next day in the papers, on the front page of the New York Times, front page of, I think, the, the tabloids, here was this, this, and this map with the number written on each division and cops paid off. You got the clear implication that every cop in the department got that amount per month in those divisions when, in fact, you were talking, and if you read the article, and you'd know, that you're only talking about a group of 700 divided up among these 16 divisions. So that uh, what I'm saying is the inertia of once once the it, it got... Uh, understand, I'm, I'm running on, but we were on public television... Uh, Channel 13 ran us live uh, throughout the day and then repeated the, the, the hearings throughout the evening so that we were on for the whole day and then through the whole evening. And then on the weekends, they ran it again the whole week, prior week they had for the whole week. That's on public television. And the, we, we were on the top of the news, so we were very, very... Uh, hot news for a period of a couple of weeks and and it fed on itself and I think that had a lot to do with it too that that uh, that the hearings certainly were far more more spectacular than than I had thought the 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 state uh, commission of investigations had done a 
a set of public hearings on narcotics about a year earlier. Paul Curran had run them. And they got a few, you know. Nothing. They, they, that's what I thought. I thought that that we'd get, you know, the Times would run it and we would get a few things the first couple of days and then after it would disappear and then, uh, but uh-uh, that every single day for two weeks it, it, and it fed on itself. So it, it just fortuitously uh, became what I thought was was good because it certainly got the word out. Well, you have to remember it's another era, but you have to also remember that that while this is largely a tabloid story, it's a class, classic police corruption cop stuff, those are the tabs. This is a rare story, and the New York Times has any totally vested interest in covering everything that commission does. This is their Pulitzer Prize. It's their story. They uncovered. That might even make the other papers a little ginger in feeding the story. But if the Times is going to cover everything on the front page, you got to cover it. So, so, and not easy to get on the front page of the New York Times with a police story. It's not their bread and butter with police corruption story. You do one. But because they broke the story in a banner headline and continued with it, um, David Burnham, who did it, this is, this is something they stayed with throughout, and that is very important to driving the coverage of this throughout the media in New York. And I'd say Frank Serpico, to me, then, since, now, is a hero, a remarkable man. I, I don't have a, anything but positive feeling about it. When David, when Frank testified it for the first time was clear to me that, that, that he and I may have had very different assumptions of what the conversation was between us, which David was the go-between. And my clear understanding of the ground rule of every conversation with Frank was that Frank's name could never be used for anything. That, that he didn't, so it would have been relatively easy if you had a, a cop, an undercover cop, you go to the commissioner or John Walsh and say, I've got a cop, here's what he says, come back and tell us what you find. But to go back and say, I got a cop who I can't tell you his name, but here's what he alleged, well, think about the cop commissioner is going to do that. Oh, you're, you're now doing your own investigation, rogue investigation, I'll put you in a goddamn grand jury. I mean, you're not going to tell us who the cop is, you're protecting a cop who has allegations. So you couldn't tell the department, we have a cop who's talking to City Hall, but won't talk to you. That was my understanding of the ground rules. Frank, Frank's testimony, I think, had no such assumption, or at least was ambiguous about that. So for the first time, 